Finally, as he always did when the servants had despaired of finding him, she lay sobbing on her bed, and there he appeared, a man of five years, bent on revenge, his face red and streaked with dirt from his crying. As soon as she opened her arms, he flew into her lap and lay against her breast. She was little more than a girl herself, but he didn't know it. Tonya, she said impulsively, rocking like a child, there's still time. I'm taking you with me to San Marco. Never had Tonio witnessed such a spectacle. Candles everywhere wreathed the marble columns, and in the gusts from the open doors the torches roared in their sconces. Trumpets blared. The doge appeared in his great chair under a swaying canopy. Incense filled the air. Then came the grand council in their brilliant robes. The tall, bone-thin figure of Andrea Tresci came into view, sleeves down to the floor, his white hair the shape of a lion's mane, his deep-set pale eyes fixed like those of a statue before him. Papa! Tonio's whisper carried sharply. But suddenly from out of the air it seemed a great singing burst forth, voices high and clear and declaring. It came in waves from either side of the immense nave, melody interwoven with melody. Tonio could almost see it, a great golden net thrown out as if on the lapping sea in shimmering sunlight. And finally he saw, right above, the singers. Tonio had dropped to the floor. He dashed through the press of skirts and cloaks and saw the open door to the stairway. Suddenly he stood in the warmth of the choir loft itself, looking up into the eyes of a giant of a man whose voice poured out of him as clean and golden as the clarion of the trumpet. The man sang the one great word, Alleluia. Tonio opened his mouth. He sang the one word right in time with the tall singer. The singer was nodding to him, and then an arm wound down about his waist to lift him. Tonio's body went away, carried out on the air with his voice and the singer's voice as the sounds became indistinguishable. When it was over, and he was placed in his mother's arms again, she looked up to this giant as he made her a deep bow and said, Thank you, Alessandro. Alessandro, Tonio whispered. Mama, when I grow up, will I sing like Alessandro, Mama? I want to be one of those singers. Good Lord, Tonio, no. She burst out laughing. He was nine years old before he learned that Alessandro and all the tall singers of San Marco were eunuchs. But it was a commonplace mystery. They sang in all the churches of Venice. They taught music when they were old. Tonio's tutor, Beppo, was a eunuch. By this time, too, Tonio knew he was Marcantonio Tresci, the son of Andrea Tresci, who had once commanded the galleys of the Serenissima on foreign seas and had just been elected to the Council of Three. In other words, Tonio's father was among those more powerful than the Doge himself. The name Tresci had been in the Golden Book for a millennium. Three brothers of Tonio, all long dead, the children of a first wife gone to the grave too, had served in high places. Tonio would certainly take his place among those young statesmen. It would be the University of Padua before that, two years at sea, a tour of the world, and for now hours spent in the library of the Palazzo under the gentle but relentless eyes of his tutors. Portraits hung on these walls. Tonio perceived his resemblance to some more than others. Dead uncles, cousins, those brothers, 
All three sons with their father and his somber first wife peered from the grandest of gilt frames in the longer supper room. Long before he knew the full import, he'd been told that only one son of a great Venetian family marries. It was custom so old it might have been law. If any of those shades had lived long enough to produce a son of the Tresci name, Tonio would not be here. His father would never have taken a second wife. The very price of life for him was that his brothers had been swept away. Yet he played his fantasy out. He saw these yawning rooms, brilliantly lit, pictured soft-spoken men and women who were his own kin, a swarm of nameless cousins. And always his father was about, at supper, on the ballroom floor, turning to catch his youngest son in his arms with a wealth of spontaneous kisses. As it was, Tonio seldom saw his father. Tonio would never remember the precise moment he perceived the full dimensions of his universe. All the world, it seemed, rode the broad green waters of the Grand Canal at his doorstep. Regattas all year long, with hundreds of sleek black gondolas gliding by. Lavish Saturday evening parades in summer, when the great families decked their peyote with garlands and gilded gods and goddesses. There were the endless songs of the gondoliers, lilting tenors, echoing up to the olive-green and rose-coloured walls, the rich, sweet strum of floating orchestras. At night, lovers cruised under the stars. But by the time Tonio was thirteen, he was sick of watching the world through the windows. The Palazzo Tresci wasn't merely his home. It was his prison. Beppo, the old castrato who'd long ago lost his voice, taught him French, poetry and counterpoint, while Angelo, the young and serious priest, dark of hair and slight of build, taught him Latin, Italian and English. Twice a week the fencing master came. There was the ballerino, a charming Frenchman, who put him through the minuet and the quadrille. Tonio must know how to kiss a lady's hand, when and how to bow, all the fine points of a gentleman's manner. Tonio's only escape on his own was into the bowels of the house, when he fled to the neglected rooms of the lowest floor where no one could find him. Spiders tiptoed on the rafter, and the grey light of the afternoon shone dingy through barred glass. He felt sad. He felt afraid. His father was so old. His mother was so young. He sensed secrets in the very air about him. Maybe in the end it was only that all of his life his mother had been so unhappy. Once Guido had been chosen for the stage, it was grueling work from then on, with the dazzle of the opera house night after night where he sang in the chorus if there was one, and left with a head full of applause and the scent of perfume and powder. Guido had long resigned himself that he could feel no passion. He accepted this completely. But one night he fell into an eerie dream in which he saw himself caressing a woman. He awoke, sweaty, miserable. One day late in summer he could not sing at all. He was so distracted by a young maestro who was standing before him, a married teacher with wife and children. He thought the teacher was smiling at him. His gaze was full of innocence when he looked at Guido. Or was it? When darkness fell, Guido found himself walking down an empty corridor, past rooms long deserted. As he reached the maestro's door, he saw the dim figure of the man out of the corner of his eye. Guido, the man whispered from the dark.
For a moment Guido saw nothing, and his own breath was hoarse and pounding. And then he saw luminous hands gathering what was left of the light from everywhere as they opened the front of the man's bridges. So the secret sin he had imagined was known and shared. He needed no instruction. Ah, gentle, breathed the maestro. Gentle. But with a thrust of his hips, he pressed against Guido all the mingled sense of his body, the damp curling hair, the flesh itself. Guido gave a guttural cry as he felt the dry, raw pinnacle of his own passion. He had not been prepared for this so abruptly and totally to finish. Guido had lain down on the floor. The maestro knelt beside him. Guido turned his face away. Guido, the man said gently. Listen to me, young one, he coached, his hand scratching the hairs of Guido's neck. You make them kneel to you, he whispered. You'll learn when you hear those bravos in your ears, when they're pelting you with tributes and flowers. Mariana rarely struck Tonio any more. At thirteen he was as tall as she was. Very early he'd come to realize she was much more the child than he was, and that she'd never meant to hurt him. But she was helpless in her darker moods. The world collapsed upon her, and when he had clung to her, crying and afraid, he had terrified her. He learned now to mask his fears at such times, and strive to soothe her, distract her. The one infallible way was through music. She'd grown up on music, an orphan, She'd been placed in the Ospedale della Pietà, one of the famous convent conservatorios of Venice, whose choir and orchestra, made up entirely of girls, astonished all Europe. She taught Tonio his first songs, and to play and sing anything by ear so his tutors could only marvel. When she was at her worst, her breath rank from wine, her eyes glazed and cruel, he would appear light, whimsical, and lure her to the harpsichord. Come on, Mama, he would say gently, as if nothing were amiss. Sing with me. She shuffled impatiently through the old scores for the aria she loved, or, having him recite any bit of poetry he'd recently learned, made up a new melody for it. You're a mimic, she would say, when he followed an intricate passage perfectly. She'd swell a note slowly, skillfully, only to hear his flawless echo. And clasping him suddenly with her warm and very strong hands, she whispered, Do you love me? He knew every morning of his life when he opened his eyes whether she was happy or sad. He could feel it. And he reckoned the hours of study by how soon he might slip away to be with her. But he didn't understand her. There was a mounting sense in Tonio that something must happen. Life couldn't get any worse for him as he saw it. And then one afternoon, foolishly, Beppo brought Alessandro, the chief singer from San Marco, to hear Tonio sing with his mother. Mariana was sound asleep, the blinds drawn. Tonio would sooner waken the Medusa. Tonio felt desperate. He took up Vivaldi's latest operatic score, Montezuma, and within seconds he was in the middle of a sprightly and dramatic piece, his voice warming quickly. He was amazed to see the eunuch rise and take his place by the harpsichord. And as Tonio pounded quickly into the first duet, he heard that magnificent voice behind him, lifting and carrying his own. The singing went on and on, until all formality had left them, 
When both of them finally stopped, the house was dark. You must stay to supper, he said, rising. The table was quickly laid out with all the appropriate linen and silver. Seating himself at the head of the table as he always did when alone, Tonio was soon deep in conversation. Alessandro was explaining that on the stage one impersonated another. One had to act, to be there in space, to be seen. It wasn't the same at all in church. It was the voice soaring over everything. Tonio took another sip of wine, and just as he was going to say that he wanted so much to see an opera, he realized that his father had just come into the room. Tonio's fear was so immediate, all thought left him. What had he been thinking to invite a guest to supper? And then he saw his father was smiling, talking, making some witticism. And when his father glanced to him, there was nothing in his eyes but a lively warmth, a gentleness, a boundless love that showed itself deliberately and generously. The next morning he could scarcely believe it when Angelo announced that from now on they would take an hour's stroll every day in the piazza. Your father says you are old enough for that now. After his brief moments with the young maestro, Guido had either put on a badge for all to see, or the cataracts had been removed from his eyes, for the world was alive with seduction. Each night, lying awake, he could hear the sounds of love-making in the dark, and at the opera house women plainly smiled at him. By his seventeenth year he had a lovely contessa, twice married and very rich, for a secret and sometime mistress. These were rich times, blissful times. Guido was almost ready for Rome, and his first lead role there. At eighteen he stood five feet ten inches tall, with the lung power to fill a vast theatre with the chilling purity of his unaccompanied voice. That was the year he lost his voice forever. The Piazza. It was a small victory, but for the next few days Tonio was ecstatic. The sky seemed a limitless blue, and all up and down the canal the striped awnings were a flutter in the warm breeze, and the window boxes crowded with fresh spring flowers. On the fourth day they ran into Alessandro. Why, Excellency! Alessandro embraced him quickly. How fine to see you today! In a sudden burst of exuberance, Tonio invited Alessandro to a cup of wine. Would you choose the café? Tonio was just saying. But a man suddenly touched Tonio's arm. You don't remember me, do you, Tonio? He asked. No, signore. I have to confess.